good. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, this is uh, another episode um, on our Decolonize Buffalo podcast, and today we have a special guest. Um, so would you, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and then sure. we can go from there? Yeah, so hi, um, my name is Cassandra Alicia. I'm from El Paso and live in El Paso. Um, I have a podcast uh, called Twitter Brown Femmes, and I also have an online platform that is now called uh, currently Chicanista. Uh, previously, it was called Chicanismo, though, um, and I, but I guess we can get into that <laughs> at a later time. Um, yeah, I've lived in El Paso. Um, I'm Mexican American, um, and I—that's pretty much it. <laughs> cool. Um, so I'm also from El Paso. I grew up in the Greater El Paso hottest metro area. You know, um, I would like to say that I grew up in both cities because it's true. Mm-hmm. I did. You know, a lot of people there, like do grow up in both cities it's a pretty common thing but you know I'm not just from El Paso and I've also I've lived all over the world and I haven't really lived 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 in El Paso since I was maybe like 17-ish um yeah I kind of I just didn't want to live there you know (laughs) um I, I wanted to do other things with my life and um, I've been listening to y'all's podcast, too, to kind of just get a catch-up a bit. Um, and I think a lot of the topics that y'all talk about feel very, like, relevant and personal to me, too. Um, so, I don't know. We can just... and the, Like, the Chicanismo thing, like, I don't even really want to talk about that that much because mm-hmm. I think... I feel like you've covered it a lot in the year podcast, and I feel like we've talked about it a lot here, too. And I'm sure it's going to come out in conversation, but like, you know, that doesn't have to be yeah. the focus. I would, I would rather it be like, you know, we can do some heavy stuff, we can do some light stuff, but more conversational, yeah. kind of just like two people um, okay. coming from El Paso and kind of that perspective mm-hmm. that, that we kind of have. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Is there any is there any one topic you want to start with? I don't. I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have anything off the top of my head, but uh, I'm down for whatever topic that comes up. All right. Uh, let me see. Let me think of the questions I sent. <laughs> I'm so well prepared. <laughs> um, let's maybe let's just dive into. Let's let's keep on that tangent of like El Paso Juarez, and mm-hmm. maybe like what what that means, right? Because a lot of people who might not be from a border area, you know, it's I think it, it's really it might be confusing or hard to understand like what that actually means and what that looks like in everyday life. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want do you want to start or I can start or uh, you you can yeah you can go ahead and start and I can just jump in or okay cool. Um, I guess I should probably uh, let me do more of like an introduction on myself to kind of maybe help get a better feel <laughs> for who I am too before that I didn't do that. So so I'm Ainon. Um, I was born in El Paso, but I grew up in both El Paso and Juarez. Um, 
I'm come from a, I have four other siblings. Um, my stepdad was born in Juarez, and like going through that whole immigration process as a kid was really interesting to be a part of. And I say interesting in air quotes because you know it rife with politics and racism and xenophobia and all that stuff. Um, and I went to the same elementary school, uh, and I didn't really. You know how in El Paso, a lot of people, like, define themselves by, like, which high school they went to, and that's kind of, like, your allegiance is always to that area. Um, <laughs> yes. I kind of, like, <laughs> don't have that. So I ended up going to Socorro High School for my four years. Well, actually, technically three years. Um, uh, but I grew up in a lot of different places, but the same elementary school I went to was in the Bel Air area, um, but we lived in many different places um, when I was growing up. You know, Juarez, we lived there twice when I was growing up. Um, so just kind of like, you know, having that experience of like a really, a, a younger mother, but also like having to cross the border, like to go to school super early in the morning and then having to do things like lie about where you live, um, you know, use like an aunt's address that's actually within the school district and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it really, it's a pretty common story, you know, like my story isn't, isn't very unique. Um, and when I was in high school, I decided I wanted to be an exchange student and study in Japan because I had taken Japanese class in elementary school. Uh, so I ended up getting a scholarship and I, I moved to Japan for 10 months with the whole family in high school. So, so I technically graduated high school in three years in the U.S., but like one of those years was spent in Japan. So it's like I still graduated with like my cohort. Um, and then after that, I moved all over the place. I started school in London, actually, with my first semester. Then I moved to Costa Rica, then I also spent some time in Germany, and then I went to New York, and then back to Japan, <laughs> and then just back wow. and forth, and my family <laughs> moved to San Antonio, so then I moved to San Antonio, I finished my bachelor's there, I ended up getting my master's as well, I moved to San Francisco for like a brief stint for like a month and a half or something like that, um, and then more recently, I was living in Flagstaff, uh, I moved around, I went back to San Antonio, then I went to New Zealand for three months because I, I kind of wanted to not not kind of recalibrate myself, I guess. And then I mm. ended up coming back to the U.S. and then now I'm in Arizona uh, again, but this time in Tucson, which is a lot like El Paso weather-wise. So I'm kind of loving the sun again. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like a little snippet of me and I think a lot of the topics that y'all talk about, like being brown, being like Mexican-American, you know, and then all the different things and problematic languages or associations that identity can have and, you know, just all the crap. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found very relatable, so. I'm glad. Yeah. Um, I, you know, think that, like, I'm really glad that I'm having this conversation with someone else who's from El Paso because I feel, you know, on Bitter Brown Femmes, I, I'm from El Paso. Ruben, my co-host, he is from L.A. 
Um, and then at one point they were living in uh, like Oakland, so just California, but they are from LA. And so I always try to send her El Paso um, or like bring it up somehow in on Better Run Fans, like in my work online because, well, it's my home, but I, you know, it's also like being from a border city um, and it, the experience of it and, and not just the experience of it, I think, but just that it's always like either talked about from people who do not live at the border and don't know what it's like <laughs> um, in this very like romanticized way um, in this abstract way um, or people just forget about border cities completely um, within like political discourse um, in general. Um, so I just try to always like bring it up, you know, or like just kind of center it. Um, but actually speaking with someone from El Paso um, is very like, you know, I'm like happy <laughs> that we're having this conversation. And it's also because, you know, even though we're both from El Paso, like, as you said, um, we don't all share the same experience, right? Like I'm not, I, I was born here in El Paso. I, when I, so let me backtrack because <laughs> I don't want to confuse everybody. Um, so my mom, she is from Florida and she, from there, she made her way to Juarez. She lived in Juarez she worked there and then she crossed over to El Paso. Um, so she, uh, you know, she would, this was back in the 80s, so I don't, even though, like, the border existed then, like, I don't think it was as militarized or, as, you know, strict, quote-unquote, as it is now. So, oftentimes she would tell me, you know, she would get caught and they would send her back. And, it, it you know, obviously it was, quote-unquote, illegal, but it wasn't, like, how it is today. Um, so, she, finally, though, she met my dad, who's a U.S. citizen, who's from, from El Paso, and they got married. Um and so after they got married, though, we were we lived in Juarez, actually. But I don't remember that time much. Um, I think by the time I was four, we moved back when I started school. So I know that we lived there and I have, like, memories here and there. But I don't, you know, I was, like, really young. Um, and then I grew up here in El Paso. But like you said, I my family's still in Juarez. So every weekend we would go to Juarez, every spring break, every summer, like I was in Juarez. And I don't think that people realize like the border here in El Paso um, compared to in Arizona or San Diego, because in El Paso, it's so, they're so connected, you know, like, it's just, I don't think like, I, I have trouble explaining that to people who have never been here because I think they think, uh, like there's this big distance in between El Paso and Juarez, right? Where you have to drive and then you finally reach the border and then you drive and then you finally get into the city of Juarez. And it's like, no, like you literally walk over and like you're there in two minutes. <laughs> so it, it's like a very different experience from other border cities. And so when I think of El Paso and Juarez or like going to Juarez, it's not this, I don't explain it. Like, it, it, like you said, it's just, it's this very normal thing. It's not like I'm going on this long trip to Juarez. It's literally like, I'll be right back. I'm going to go to Juarez, you know? Um, so I kind of, even though I didn't live in Juarez a lot, like I still grew up there too in, in one way or another. Um, so there's a lot of people here in El Paso who, you know, cross, cross the border to go to UTEP. They cross the border to go to elementary schools, to high school. Uh, there's undocumented people, um, 
people that are like me that aren't undocumented, but we have that connection to Juarez either because our family lives there or just because we're here, right? Um, and then I've met people who have never gone to Juarez who live in El Paso, and that's really weird to me. Um, I guess, like, I don't know that, like, that's strange to me, but I guess, you know, it's just like this thing that even though we're all here at the border, and the majority, you know, I want to say like the, the demographic here in El Paso is 80%. Like, um, Latinx, for example, like we all share similar but very different like experiences in El Paso and Juarez. So. Yeah, I think that makes me think, um, as you're saying that about like the border and just how unrelatable it is to people who haven't grown up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I totally feel that because I didn't feel like my experiences were anything unique or different growing up until I actually like moved around the world and like, you know, with how people like where I was from and like how I grew up and the things, you know, I did. And that was, that was just like, it was so very eye opening to me, like how unique of an experience like that, that border region is, you know, um, and for people who might be listening, like El Paso and Juarez, like you literally walk out your door and you see both cities from most parts of the city that you're in. Like you can mm-hmm. see, you can see both sides. Like it's always, it's always there. Like it's not like a, you can ignore it. It's, it's there. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting that you said, you know, like the border is more militarized now because it's definitely been my experience going you know, like growing up there and then like now what a different experience it is now to go to Juarez than from when I used to actually like live in Juarez in elementary school and cross the border, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, like we didn't even need passports until like very Mm -hmm. recently, Um, you know, that kind of thing and like the, 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 it's not really a wall, but you know, the big like barrier, the big steel or metal barriers that have come up, you know, is also very like, I mean, it sucks, but it's also very interesting to me because how you're right, like how militarized it's become. And it's just become like ridiculous because I feel like a lot of the people from there, like we know for a fact that those walls are not going to do anything. Like they're not really going to stop illegal immigration. They're not going to stop drugs from coming in because it's like government corruption that's doing that in the first place. So like, it's all just, you know, like, lights and whistles and it's gonna it's gonna have a very like pronounced effect on people that it shouldn't have an effect on you know like fucking children um you know uh so it's just it's just so interesting to me because it's I don't know it's not an experience that a lot of people have and it's not one that they can relate to and like for me like whenever you start talking about border relations it's so heavy you know, like, it's so relevant because, like, like you, I have, like, I just have so many experiences with my family growing up in Juarez and, like, those, like, cultural ties that I have, not as, like, a us versus them, but as, a, like, this is who I am, you know, like, Juarez is, like, a big part of who I am as a person, too, um, and I've also met people, and there's some people in my family who, like, have never gone to Juarez in, like, their adult life. And it's weird. It's really weird to me, you know? Um, and it's especially weird when you start having, like, political conversations with them because it's, it's, you know, it starts to surface sometimes of how insulated being 
in the U.S. can actually be, even though it's like there's literally like now a pretty dry river that cuts in between these two countries. Like, you know, there's there's a right side of the fence and then there's the wrong side of the fence, you know, and like Juarez is always seen as the wrong side of the fence. But people don't, I feel like people in El Paso, we don't talk about our actions as U.S. citizens perpetuate that. Um, you know, and it's kind of like we like to buy into the idea of like, oh, yeah, we're one and we're like, we're like Mexican and whatever, but we don't act like it. You know, like we, we don't, I don't know. I know you know what I mean. I'm trying to like mm-hmm, articulate it better, but. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I get it, yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting to me to like, um, I don't know, maybe let's let's go into the topic of like culture and I, I kinda wanted to maybe even talk about language and how language plays into the culture of El Paso Juarez, um, and kind of like your experiences and your thoughts and I don't know, just like what, what what's the cultural component of that? And um something I think about a lot is like how some of my family members who themselves claim that they're Mexican, you know, like they only eat Mexican food in El Paso, they only do all these things in Mexican, and they have to have mariachis at like every big celebration and all that stuff, which is great, you know, but then it's like, oh, but I would never go to Juarez, or like, oh, you know, now El Paso is becoming too much like Juarez because of like the drug violence and the spillover, and so people are like being run out of Juarez, so they have to come, you know, start their businesses in El Paso so they don't get murdered, you know, and like little, little bits of like racism that are like, oh, well, you know, they're kind of like poor or they're, you know, they're just, they're just those like mojados and you're like, what the fuck, you know, like, have you looked in the mirror? Like, and you're, you're always claiming like your identity as Mexican as separate from like the white Americans, but here you are like oppressing who we are as well. And I just, you know, like, it's a small, well, I don't know how small of a subset of people. For me, it's a split in the family. It's like my mom's side and my dad's side, you know? Like, it's, they kind of have very different ideological beliefs, and they, how, how they present those beliefs, it, it plays out in very different ways. And so I get to see, I get to see a lot of sides <laughs> within my family, yeah. for better or worse. <laughs> no, definitely. I think that... <sighs> that's like, that's like all of El Paso. I'm going to be real. Like <laughs> that's such a xenophobia here. And and it's of course interesting because it's like, these are other people that you said they claim that they're Mexican. Like that's like their cultural um, thing, but then they turn around and like every time they see a Juarez play, they get mad, you know? And that's just the thing. Like people here are so xenophobic towards people from Juarez specifically. And I think that it's it's just, I was reading, and I wish I had the quote right now, it's from this book that I was reading, um, you know, about the femicide in Juarez, and in relation to, you know, the border, and it was kind of like how people, first, like, El Paso is a very poor city, a lot of border cities are, Um, the, you know, the income is very low here, there's like hardly jobs, like people live in poverty, but because we're at the border, we always, instead of measuring ourselves or comparing ourselves to the rest of the U.S., we always compare ourselves to Juarez. So if we are like, yeah, like, 
El Paso's poor, like there's nothing but minimum wage jobs, et cetera. But when we, in context of Juarez, well, then we're rich, right? Quote unquote. So instead of, again, like we're in the USA. So instead of saying like, wow, like our the poverty rate here, aside from everything else, right? Like environmental racism, um, for example, like we are very like, it's a poor city, but because we live next to Juarez, who's like, you know, in Mexico, who's like a poor city as well, like we compare ourselves to Juarez. And then that's just one of the things of like, I think why El Paso people here, it's a lot of things. Why I want to say why they don't, why we don't understand like how fucked El Paso is in terms of like inequality, for example, right? Um, because we're always comparing ourselves to Juarez and it's kind of like, oh, well, we have it better than them, right? Like, and then it turns into like, we are better than them, not just in these terms of like economically, but because we are uh, quote unquote Americans. And so we get to say we're Mexican and we get to enjoy all the food and the culture and the mariachis, but at the same time, we still have privilege as Americans. And so it's like, you want to have your cake and eat it too. Like you want, it's kind of like what white people do, you know, when they're, when they appropriate Mexican culture or any culture, black culture, like they want all the good entertaining parts of it, but they don't want like the rest, like the actual people that come with it. They don't want to acknowledge their privilege. They just kind of want the entertainment and like the cool romanticization of the culture. And I feel that, yeah, that can be said for a lot of people in El Paso. Um, Cause you're right. You know, if you ask someone in El Paso, you know, what are you or, etc they're gonna say they're Mexican even though they hold a lot of xenophobic ideals and they hate people from Juarez and like specifically you know last year with when the Walmart shooting happened which is a, a very heavy conversation but I just wanted to add like you know a lot of the people that were unfortunately killed by this white supremacist were Mexican nationals right because that Walmart specifically is the Walmart where a lot of people from Juarez go to shop and so it, it the whole thing was just seeing people mourn for Mexican nationals, for example, when I kept thinking to myself, if the if they of all the people that were killed were just Mexican nationals, like would you care? Right? Like would you actually like would you have the same reaction? Or is it because it happened here and because some of them were a, a Mexican American? Because there's so much xenophobia and so you know, everyone was like, oh, Paso strong, one love, and all this bullshit, and then a few weeks later, they went back to being xenophobic against people from Hawaii, <laughs> and it's just like, it's just like little things like that that are so frustrating, and it, it's just, it, it, it's like a lot to even unpack, and like, I don't know how long we're gonna talk, like, let's say an hour, like, it's just so much, because El Paso, like, there's just so many things happening. We have, like, the border mentalized border militarization the xenophobia the nationalism um and the fact that it that it's not just a board like yes like the border is militarized but it's all of El Paso that is militarized on top of like the military base we have here and so it keeps people here in this very like I don't know what to call it like this conditioned state where we we feel like we cannot fight back and we can a lot of times when I go to protests any protest, they're right when you show up, there's already like border patrol, there's helicopters, there's like police everywhere. And it's just like, people think this is normal. This is like the norm in El Paso and it, 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 it's not. And it's just like very frustrating because a lot of people do hold these fucked up ideals, but we also have to look at like the systems that are in play here that, that have made it this way. Yeah, you're right. Like 
those, those people who are policing other people, like the Border Patrol and, like, the helicopters that, like, protest and stuff, they're all, they're, it's funny to me because they tend to also be brown, right? And they tend to mm-hmm. also be the people from El Paso who are saying, we're Mexican, we only eat Mexican food, tacos every day, whatever, you know? And they, oh, we speak Spanish and whatever, but at the same time, it's like, but you're also, like, you're them. Like, literally, like, your mom or your grandma crossed over and would have been considered illegal nowadays, and you have the benefit and the privilege of, like, a U.S. birth certificate, which entitles you to this mass amount of privilege, but yet here you are oppressing, like, you know, future youth, you know? Like, and it's 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 such a weird dynamic, you know? Like, um, and it, it's frustrating because you're right. Like, I, I can't have these conversations with most people in El Paso, you know, because the El Paso pride starts to kick in and the don't question it. And, like, you know, like, we're all one united and whatever, whatever. But it's never, like, it's never, like, a El Paso and Juarez thing, you know? It's always, like, a we're El Paso. Like, whenever there's some sort of, like, pride, it's always, like, El Paso but not Juarez, you know? Um, like, you brought up you brought up the shootings, which is, a really fucking heavy topic because I, you know, like I'm sure we both have been to that Walmart frequently and that's the Walmart where Mexicans go to shop a lot because it's right next to the mall where a lot of people cross the border to do their shopping. And then, you know, they go to the Walmart for whatever they need. And like that Walmart was targeted specifically for that reason. You know, it Mm -hmm. wasn't a random Walmart that was like, in the, you know, on the east side or, like, further north and the northeast or whatever. No, that specific Walmart was targeted because, you know, of Mexican nationals. And I think you're right that, like, had it only been Mexican nationals, like, had the media said, oh, only Mexican nationals died, there would have been a significantly less, I don't know, vigil or or mourning than than there was, you know? Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, like, people, people get shot and are murdered, like, every single day in Juarez, and you don't really hear about it, you know, that you're talking about the femicides, it's so normalized in, like, our border culture that, you know, like, it's not even something that you report on the news anymore, which is, like, sad, because people don't want to hear it, because it's so common and frequent that it's just like, oh, here we go again, you know, and it's like, but you're not, you're not changing the culture, you know, and, like, it's, it's so it's so fascinating, but at the same time, so fucking frustrating and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's just I don't know. It's 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 such a very unique place, and when you when you start to analyze it, and you start to analyze it from like a bigger systemic perspective, like you start to see how oppressed El Paso actually is, but then how kind of like what you brought up is like, yeah, the huge poverty, but then when we're comparing ourselves to like the dire situation, Juarez and the rest of Mexico, we're like, oh, well, at least we're better than them, you know? So we don't, we're entitled to this privilege in the U.S., but we don't see the bigger, the bigger picture of like, well, then we should be demanding, you know, resources. We should be demanding these things from the quote unquote government that we're under, you know, which is the U.S. government technically, but but, you know, a lot of a lot of people don't like there's a lot of complacency. And I think it's very police, too, because when you start talking about border issues, when you start talking about immigration, it's usually like, stop talking. We're not going to talk about that. You know, like that, that's too taboo. Like we're not. Nope, 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 nope. Um, you 
you know, and it's just, it's fascinating to me because we self-police a lot in El Paso. Um, we don't want to talk about the politics. You know, we want to keep the quote-unquote social harmony, but so instead of talking about the politics, we just tend to perpetuate the oppression. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's weird. It's weird. Yeah, I think one of the things that I that I talk about a lot is, um, and you, if you're anyone that's from El Paso knows like this whole, you know, El Paso is safe. El Paso is a safe city because El Paso is always ranking, you know, in these like uh, largest cities, safest largest cities in, in the, in the U S and it's always ranked like number four, number one over the years. Um, but what a lot of people don't sit. And so I think that, you know, for, and this used to be me, me too, you know, growing up, like, Oh, I feel so safe in El Paso. Like El Paso is so safe. I think the first time I ever, went anywhere outside of El Paso, uh, really, like, as not with my family, but on my own, was to Dallas, um, and then I went to Seattle and Virginia, so I had, like, a little, it was wild to me, I think, um, leaving El Paso and then realizing that white people exist <laughs> in, like, large numbers, um, because, you yeah. know, in El Paso, in El Paso, when I see, a, like, when you see a group of white people, like, it's weird, and you're, like, are they like from like I assume they're from Port Bliss, you know, like the military base, and then I it's just not common. Like you're never gonna be like the only brown person in a room. But when I would leave El Paso, whenever I still leave El Paso, even when I'm flying like to California, like and everyone on the plane is white, it still feels so weird to me. And but anyway, so like when I left, I started realizing like, oh shit, like the, like El Paso is not like you know what I mean, like oh like this is weird and scary and when I would live in, when I lived in, I lived in Seattle too for some time, like a few months actually, I remember what I would watch the news and like, it was just like all these, and it's not too shit on Seattle, obviously, but just like a lot of crime, quote unquote crime, right. That would come out like murders and all this stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, like in El Paso, like if someone, you know, crashes on the freeway, it's like this huge thing because you know, not that many things happen. Been, or at least that's what I used to think when I was younger, you know, and now, you know, that I'm like more politically aware and I'm more active in community and I, I actually see things for what they are in El Paso. It's just this thing that we've been fed, like El Paso so safe, El Paso so safe. And so you're like, well, there's nothing for me to do, right? Like we live in a safe city, so it's not like I have to go and um, protest something or be scared of something to leave my house. Like everything is so just like I, perfect here, you know, we're like in our own little island and we're safe. And then you start to question like, who is El Paso safe for? Because and for me as a, I, a, person who was born here you know i'm not Cassandra. I, I never yes okay are you on speakerphone no okay it's, your phone is acting up i don't know what's going on um okay. i'm sorry yeah is just this... oh it's yeah um... it's okay it... yeah keep going i'm sorry if, 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 yeah okay. it's better okay um as someone who was born here who's not undocumented um you know i've never I don't have to be scared of ice. I don't have to be scared of crossing into Juarez or coming back. Um, that's just not something that I, you know, that's just not my reality. Um, I feel safe in El Paso. Like I generally feel I could leave my house. I, I mean, of course there's like this layer of like, I obviously I'm a woman and I, I, I the thing I experienced most in El Paso is actually like homophobia for me. That's been my thing. Um, but other, like as, generally like i feel safe in el paso 
and then I when I unpacked that when I started unpacking that I'm like do undocumented people feel safe in El Paso no <laughs> of course not especially because they have a lot of them have to cross the border a lot of them have to always see I always see border patrol everywhere I go you know in El Paso like you could be at the drive-through at some place and you'll see a border patrol like I it's just like you see border patrol everywhere so if I was undocumented like would El Paso is El Paso safe for me no as a black person is El Paso safe for you no I, I have a lot of black friends here in El Paso who are often erased you know because we think of El Paso and we're like everyone here is Latinx right and it's like no that's not true like black people still exist here and they have to experience anti-blackness from us and it's not even like a lot of my black friends are like i experience more anti-blackness from latinx people non-black latinx people than i do the few white people that are here and then i you know and then you just start thinking is el paso safe or is it safe for like the privileged people here who don't have to think about all of these things they don't have to think about racism they don't have to think about detention even though like detention is a big fucking thing in El Paso we don't have to think about um, anti-blackness and what that looks like we don't have to think about police brutality like because we all fucking love cops here um, because it's like uh, you know it's just El Paso is very unique and at the same time it's so I don't even know what the word is like <laughs> what we're talking about that people are just conditioned to like everything is fine because El Paso safe and oh and then I think that's a, that's what I was getting at another thing is like how is El Paso safe and I think what they you know a lot of like government officials try to use you know the reason we're safe is because of police you know thanks to our police officers we are safe thanks to our border patrol we are safe thanks to the the border wall and the border militarization we are safe and so then people are like oh yes we have to thank them because we are safe because we made this list for the last few years of like El Paso safe so we have to thank them and it's like first of all a lot of people here are not safe and police and border patrol like they do not make people safe um militarization does not make people safe right um but it's just like this idea that we're fed and so people believe it and they don't question it because they want to keep us compliant because when you look at El Paso's history from the KKK to the Bath riots um there's just so much ugly history here with white supremacy and colonialism you know and border militarization but people don't know about it because people are kept you know in the state of mind where again like we're safe and we need to thank our police officers and we're better than people from what is because we're in the usa and it's just it's very very exhausting to have any any sort of conversations with people especially like on a political scale on a mainstream scale like it's very very exhausting and i wish that it wasn't that way because I feel like because we're a border city, like I wish people were more aware of what's going on. I wish they would care. And I feel like we would, we would be able to make so many changes, not just here, but like that would impact like the rest of the country in terms of militarization, in terms of immigration and everything else, because El Paso is always kind of like these testing grounds for a lot of the things that happen elsewhere. And we don't say anything about it because we're not aware or because we're just like, oh, it's for our own good. You know, they're keeping us safe. And it's just, it's just a lot. It's a lot to unpack and it's very frustrating. Like, 
and it's also very interesting because El Paso is like technically a democratic city. You know, we El Pasoans like the very few that vote because not that many people vote, but it's like the few that do. It's like blue. It's a blue city, and a lot of border cities are. Most border cities are all like they always vote Democrat. But it's very interesting to me because I it's also like not that Republicans and Democrats are to me they're the same shit. But like when we're talking about how people think about them. It's interesting that everyone here votes, the majority of people vote blue, but yet the cons- there's there's like this conservatism here in El Paso that's just so ugly. And so like, it's interesting to me that, that people vote blue when like their ideologies are so fucked. Yeah. I know. Yeah, okay. I think I always joke that, um, you know, if the Republicans could just be a little bit more... Uh, lenient on immigration they would have El Paso for sure (laughs) you know if they were a little more pro like Mexican or pro you know like they could easily you know it's very it's a very you're right it's a very conservative place and like it's it's technically blue but it's not you know um it's just not like it's not a liberal society at all like it's not a liberal mentality it's very conservative very old school Catholic but you know I think what it's it's the it's the staunch whiteness within the Republican Party that keeps, you know, people from not wanting to vote Republican in places like El Paso. It's kind of like how I I perceive it anyway. Um, and I I kind of wanted to uh, go back to what you said about like safe, but safe for who, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think you hit it right on the head. We can talk about homophobia, you know, because that's clearly very, very personal to me and my experience, like, growing up in El Paso, I fucking hated it, you know? I hated it so much, and, like, I still have a lot of trauma, and, like, for me, El Paso represents trauma, you know? And it's really hard to talk about that with people who are from there because they just don't get it, you know? They're like, well, you you know, well, you're fine now, and I'm all like, yeah, because I had to fucking go through the ringers you know, and kind of find my own, my own space and kind of like, like I said, I left El Paso when I was about 17 and I never looked back, you know, um, like growing up queer there and growing up with like, you know, a Catholic family, which most people's and most people's families in that area are, you know, um, with the staunch homophobia, like was super fucking traumatic for me, you know, and like, it's only recently that I've kind of come to terms with like, not my sexuality or, like, my queerness, but, like, that it's okay to not want to go back to El Paso (laughs) and not want to necessarily visit family and not, you know, not have that staunch loyalty of, like, well, your family's blood and it's important and blah, 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 blah. Um, You know, it's like, yeah, but also, like, my family represents a lot of trauma for me and, like, every time I go back, it's kind of like I'm setting myself up for re-traumatizing myself and reliving those experiences and like my family was never like violently homophobic but you know psychologically for sure you know like whenever I think of like growing up I always had this secret right and like it just eats at you and it just gnawed at me and I couldn't like I don't know like I couldn't pass because I didn't like women in any shape or form so like I couldn't even pretend you know um 
So that was like, I don't know, that was really hard for me. And I, I don't have the same sorts of like pride that a lot of people in El Paso have. You know, I have I have a lot of resentment and a lot of anger um, for growing up there. And, you know, like I've, I'm, I'm starting to work through that anger and like, it's, it's, it's okay. You know, like I, I tell myself and I know that having that resentment and anger is a perfectly like quote unquote normal response to the things that I had to live through growing up in El Paso slash Juarez, you know? And like, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, you know, it's so nice and refreshing to talk to someone who's also from El Paso to like, voice this because I think you're one of the few people who's actually like voiced it that I've heard you know like in public or in in you know like on a podcast or just like in speech and I was like oh man where were you in high school when I needed a friend like you you know but like, <laughs> um you know and it's just like I don't know like it just represents a lot of trauma and there's so much homophobia that it's like it's safe if you're like a straight Mexican-American man and a mm. passive Mexican-American woman who wants to be a homemaker, then yeah, El Paso's great. El Paso's great for you if you want to conform to very specific gender norms, you know, and, like, you don't want to question authority or just anything in general. Like, yeah, it's great. It's a great place, you know, and it is super safe because kids can walk around and not get kidnapped or you know, beat up and, like, compared to other cities and stuff like that. And there's not a high murder rate either, but it's also, like, that's because that happens in Juarez. And, like, all the white-collar crimes happens on this side. You know, so, mm-hmm. like, El Paso gets all the white-collar stuff, all the dealings, all the money, you know, all the laundering. And then Juarez gets all the violence and all the, you know, all the things that need to make that money, money laundering happen on the other side. Like, that's what... Juarez has to deal with, you know, like daily. And so it's it's not that it's safe. It's just that the crime there is different. Um, of course. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, going talking about homophobia, like it is, and I think this is persistent, of course, and just Mexican culture, Mexican households, and you know, in in general. And every time I have these conversations, like I have to specify, like this does not mean you know, that uh, Mexicans in particular or other uh, or the Latinx community is like inherently like more homophobic or more machista, right? Um, Because I feel like white people use that as a like, oh yeah, it's them. They're the homophobic ones. Like they're the, they're the patriarchal ones. And it's like, no, like, okay, this is like a community between us, right? Like our community. And so like, if white people are listening, you know, that doesn't mean like, you get to jump in or like say these things and it definitely does not mean that you all are not homophobic because like the people that make the laws in this country are white as shit and they're homophobic and they're transphobic and they hate women so I just needed to always I just need to state that (laughs) when I'm having when we're having conversations about you know about our our history and our community but within you know I, I think that homophobia as well as like machismo um you know, child abuse, like they, they are, they do exist in, in Mexican culture and, and, and it's, so like, I, I don't want to say, what I'm trying to say is not just El Paso, but I think that in El Paso though, it, it's like this very, it, it's, and I don't know if like the word is different. It's just, I don't know if it's more violent or it just looks, it, it looks a very specific way. 
Um, and, you know, for me, I've, when I was in high school, I was one of the first like out people. Um, and that was very lonely and it felt very ugly at times, right? Because people were like homophobic towards me and some, and it also homophobia looks different. Sometimes people are like condescendingly homophobia where they they think they're being nice to your face, but they're saying very like fucked up things. And then there's people that are just, you know, violent. And, you know, I've had keep like people say shit to me when I was, you know, for example, at a time with my girlfriend at a Wendy's, it turned into this whole thing where like my friend who's also gay like got water thrown at her face like like things like that that weren't just like people saying things to me online it was like actual people like men who have told me stuff like when I'm walking with my friends and like said the f word like you know to us like we're just minding our business like little things like that so like I've experienced a lot of um a lot of that and you know um Aside from that, I wanted to bring up, like, for example, um, machismo, because recently in a, if you're, if you follow people in El Paso, you'll, you would see that, uh, I would say a month ago, uh, there was a, like, people were calling it a Me Too, mo- mo- me Too moment in El Paso, right? Um, there was a lot of young girls that came forward with stories of abuse from, you know, the bar scene, like the music scene in El Paso. And this is not new to me. I've grew up here in El Paso. So like I went to a lot of shows. I was a part of the the punk scene, the hardcore scene, the emo scene. Like I have experienced the same things with older men that prey on young girls. Like this isn't a new conversation to me, but seeing it like again and again and again is very, it's fucked up, right? Because you think like this was me like 12 years ago and young girls are still experiencing the same thing. And it's not just young girls. It's also like women who were coming forward with abuse, with like assault uh, stories. Right. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about that, that I haven't yet, but I did want to, I'm like, again, abuse and like rape culture happens everywhere. It's not just El Paso, but it's like this very, El Paso is such a machista city. And it looks so, and, and and I don't know, I feel like there's this connection between the machismo in Juarez and the machismo here. And of course, like, you know, with the femicides in Juarez, which are very, very violent. And it obviously like the El Paso machismo doesn't look like that, right? Like there's not like countless disappearing women here in El Paso. Uh, so I don't want to compare those two things, but it's like the, the thought, like the ideologies behind it. it it's the same because like, in El Paso, like the machismo here, the rape culture, like the abusers here, like the men, they're so they're like on another level. And again, I, I know that this happens everywhere, but I've talked to a lot of people who are like, no, like I've lived in El Paso and I live somewhere else and it is not the same. Like in El Paso, it's just so like toxic and it's so prevalent. And so like those two, like, I feel that there's just like, <laughs> it's just so much it's just it's just so much happening in El Paso like so much toxic things and no one wants to talk about it you know and it's just like ingrained in our culture and people or in our city or whatever we want to call it and and people think that it's normal and like that we should accept it and that's just you know we have it better than than people in Juarez because right now saying you know I'm I'm bringing up the femicides in Juarez and I'm talking about you know 
these people at, that are in bands or that work at bars being very um, predatory and being abusers, like, yeah, if we compare the two things, obviously they're, they're not exactly the same, but they're rooted in the same thing, you know? And I don't know if that's because most of the, the victims are Mexican women or Latinas, right? Like, yeah, sure. There, there might be like black women and white women um, that are not Latinas, that that of course are also victims and survivors but the majority of us are are mexican women are latinas um so that i think says a lot to me too of like how we're undervalued here in el paso as well like women um whether we're from juarez or not you know um i don't know that's just it's just like there's just so much happening <laughs> i have a question like so much bullshit you know yeah you're i mean you're right like that i i don't yeah, I think about women a lot, like, um, as far as, like, what, what that means and how we perceive women's bodies, right? And, you know, I don't even think with saying, like, the quote-unquote term women's bodies, but I, I kind of maybe want to say instead maybe, like, other bodies, you know? Because, like, my mm-hmm. body is not, I'm obviously not a woman, you know? But I have really long hair and, you know, like, I sometimes have feminine features, especially growing up. And, like, I was harassed a lot for that, you know, because I was queer and, like, you know, it's, like, that hide, you have to hide it, but it's also, like, very obvious to other people. And then, you know, like, that kind of thing, it's it's just, like, the other body, right? So it's, like, it gets grouped into women's bodies as well because I think the way women's bodies are perceived, they're perceived as others, but they're also perceived as, like, there's an ownership component, right? Um, to it like we we own you and like that's something that a woman needs to be put in their place and a woman like needs to do that whatever the man says right and that's like very common in like your staunch Mexican Catholic culture and that just spills over into El Paso obviously as well um, and so you know I, ha- I, I, I always had a really hard time grappling with that growing up because like my mom's side of the family is of these like really fierce women who are always fighting men you know um and so a lot of their identity like i don't want to speak for them but i'm just making like broad observations but um has been wrapped around fighting you know um it's just they always have to have been fighting so like they don't i don't feel like they know another way you know because they always have to have their guard up and it you know to me that's very like it's it's essential, but it also can be pretty traumatizing because, I don't know, I feel like you can't really ever have a conversation with a lot of people in my family, um, a meaningful one anyway, because their, their guard's always up, then it has to be up because they live in such a machista culture, and so, like, it's, it's hurting them, too, because they don't know what a life outside of that looks like. And so when I come in, you know, and try to share my experience of, like, what my life is now, which is, like, wonderful and beautiful, and I have, like, supportive, really good supportive friends, you know, and, like, my chosen family network is huge. And, like, you know, I have people I trust, and, like, I I feel very safe emotionally, you know, like, and I can't, it's hard to communicate those kinds of feelings because they're so rare. <laughs> They're so rare in our communities, you know, and they're just so like, wait, what do you mean you don't have to not trust everyone around you, you know? And it's like, well, it's this weird, fucked up, like, psychological thing where, like, 
we we we're oppressed, so there's a lot of things that we do have to fight, you know, but then when your whole identity gets wrapped into just fighting and you you know, a lot of the times we oppress ourselves. And I think I think a lot of that stems to kind of like maybe what you said a little bit earlier of like El Paso Juarez area could be this wonderful place. You know, it really could. Like it has so much potential and like it is so beautiful, you know, like just like the scenery and the food and the culture and the people, like there's so much beauty there. Um, you know, and I embrace that completely and I'm really proud to like have been born into that, you know, because that wasn't a choice that I had. But, like, I carry I carry that with me everywhere I go because it's something that, you know, like, I'm, I'm proud of. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool that I got to be born into this, right? Um, but at the same time, like, I, I don't want to carry all the shackles and I don't want to self-police other people, you know, and I don't want to self-police myself either. And so, like, I've had to really recondition and unlearn a lot of things that I was brought up with and kind of make this mesh that works for me, you know, where, like, I can be from El Paso, I can be proud of, like, my weird border Mexican, northern Mexican heritage and language and food and culture, and you know, but then I don't have to, like, perpetuate a lot of those traumas if I don't want to, you know, and that that takes you have to have a conversation with yourself, but then you also have to find other models of like, what does a healthy relationship look like? And I don't just mean a romantic one. I look like, what is, you know, like, what does it look like for family members? What does it look like to actually trust people? What does it look like to share things, you know, like, and I think for me, that's why El Paso represents a lot of trauma because I don't really feel that with a lot of my family. I really feel like a lot of the time when I go back, it's still that same mentality of you can't trust anybody. And my family members are constantly fucking, fucking each other. They're, they're, they're like, yeah, fucking each other over all the time. You know, like there's always achievement. There's always being thrown under the bus. And I just don't, you know, I'm just in a different space. <laughs> I have a question. And mentally. And it's just like, you know what? I'm going to take all the good, all the things that I like about this, you know, like the brown skin, the, 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 the heavy sun, the wonderful food, you know, like the music, the traditions, like I'm going to carry that with me and all the other shit can stay behind, you know, like, mm-hmm. but it's work. It's a lot of work and I don't, it, I, it's something that I had to leave and I didn't find a lot of that support. And whenever there was little bits of hope, you know, like it's kind of like you get policed by other people and it's exhausting, you know, like, that's just exhausting. I have a question. This is Rick. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. So since both of you were, you know, um, raised or grew up in, in El Paso and lived in different places. And, you know, Cassandra was talking about how um, specifically her experiences in El Paso with machismo is very like it's a little bit harder, you know. Um, do you feel that's like a Texas thing or that's just an El Paso thing? Cause uh, you know, that's, this is a question for both of you. Um, I was raised in California and moving here to San Antonio, the Mexicans are very different here. This is very more machismo. Like, you know, I have to be this tough guy. I have to be the straightest of the straights, you know, I have to drive this big truck. And it's to me, it's, that's not, 
that's not me, you know, as, you know, also being Mexican. So to me, it's kind of like, um, I don't know if that's the culture, the Mexican culture here in Texas that mixed up with this Republican culture, white Republican culture here in Texas. But I find, I find it super toxic here in Texas, you know, and I think we talked about this, I know, when you lived here in San Antonio, but do you guys feel like it's a Texas thing or is that specifically in El Paso or or what? Um, I can maybe answer the first part of that. Like, uh, so I also lived in San Antonio for a good few years, like maybe like five or six, maybe seven years total. And my family is, well, part of my family is still there too. Mm, I, you know, it, it's a, when I was living in San Antonio, I would always tell people like, I'm not from Texas, I'm from El Paso. <laughs> um, so I think it's, there's a lot of the same things that go on for sure, you know, but I think with San Antonio, I'm speaking just about San Antonio, like it's, it's really different. And I think like El Paso is such a unique place within all of Texas. Like, El Paso is more similar to, like, Del Rio and, like, the border cities along, like, the literal border cities where you look across the river and there's Mexico. Like, they're more, they're more alike than the rest of Texas, whereas the rest of Texas is kind of like this weird Tex-Mex kind of mix. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so weird to me. Like, if living in San Antonio, like, was such a huge culture shock, um, for me and my family because like, you know, the food's really different. The language is really different. You know, like we, people said they spoke Spanish and then we start speaking and they don't know what we're saying. And we're like, wait a minute, what? Santa's you know, weird, yeah. it's, it's just, <laughs> it's, 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 you know, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's not a Texas thing. Like Texas is very big and it's very mm. diverse in terms mm -hmm. of like how it operates. Um, with all the different systems and governments that it has. And I think El Paso, in my experience, is a very unique place within Texas. It's a lot more like New Mexico and Mexico in that region that it that it's located in. That's what that's that's like another thing of Texas. I was wondering about because like El Paso's like on that border of Mexico and New Mex and, and New Mexico. Uh, and you know I know New Mexico has this like really strong hashtag Hatch chili culture, whatever, you know, and I'm just wondering about the food too in, in El Paso, if that's anything, because I know here in, in San Antonio, people talk about Tex-Mex and it's just like, I don't like it, you know, like it's, it's, it's just me. It's not, it's my, it's my thing. You know, I don't like Tex-Mex, but, um, and you know, people say that, um, well, I know when you cross the border, the food's a lot better and it's more obviously authentic, but in Texas, it's just like very Americanized food. And I think even the food we talk about, we can talk about food culture all day, but, um, El Paso, I've never, I've never really visited El Paso. I passed by it so many times. Um, but I'm just wondering about the food culture too. And that we don't have to talk about that. I mean, you know, it's my, a thought that's crossing my mind, <clears throat> but yeah. Yeah. I think that um, a good point is like, yes, um, we have to take into account that we're in Texas, right? <laughs> but I also don't feel like a lot of the times, like, I'm like, yes, you know, El Paso's in Texas, obviously, like, I tell people sometimes, like, a, a lot of people might assume I'm from California. 
Um, and I'm always like, no, I'm from Texas. So sometimes I'll say I'm from El Paso, sometimes I'll say I'm from Texas. But I also know that El Paso is not like the rest of Texas. Well, first, Texas is big. And I, I always have to emphasize that because I think people know Texas is big. But when you live here, it's like, it's close, like LA is closer to me than Dallas, you know, like driving or they're the same pretty much for me to get to, to California, for me to get to Dallas. So every city or small town in El Paso, I mean, I'm sorry, in Texas is different. And I think that, yes, like uh, within, again, um, like Mexicans or um, Latinx people in Texas, like you're going to obviously share a lot of similarities, but at the same time, you're not. And especially not in El Paso, because another thing is that El Paso, aside from being a border city, um, a very unique border city, it's also very secluded from the rest of Texas. So like if you're in San Antonio or Austin and Dallas, you get like you're closer to another big city. So like San Antonio to Austin, for example. Um, and so in El Paso, we're kind of just out here. Like you have to, a lot of people that tell me, you know, like you just said, like you didn't necessarily visit El Paso, but a lot of people have driven through El Paso. And it's not a place like a cool place like Austin or Dallas where Houston, you know, where people want to go and like visit. Or, like, go and, like, uh, you know, go out of your way to, like, be in. And it's, like, yeah, it's, like, secluded from the rest of Texas. Like, I think it, to drive to Odessa is, like, four hours. And Odessa, and El Paso is bigger than Odessa. So, you know, we're just out here. And that's, that's a, it, it feeds into the whole thing that I was talking about. But because we're, we're so secluded from, the, from another big city in Texas, like, we do think that we're in our own little like island you know like separated from everybody else and so like the culture here i think stays here and it and it it's molded differently than it would be in san antonio and also because of the demographic here which i said is like i don't know the demographic for example in san antonio like i know that there's there's like mexican and, and latinx people out there but i think in el paso it's just like more i think in numbers as well and i think that has a lot to do with it as well okay yeah, so we're at that one hour mark, and I want to talk about if you guys don't mind uh, Cassandra's online presence and work. Is that okay? Or sure. Are you on? <laughs> Wait, talk about what? Sorry. Uh, on Cassandra's oh. online presence. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Cassandra, how long have you been? What made you like start a podcast with Ruben? Did you have one before Ruben or did you, was, you know, uh, Bitter Brown Friends, your first endeavor online? And, and, and the second question is, before you started it, how you imagined it and how you, how it is, <laughs> you know, lately, what's the difference, you know, in, in perspectives when, you know, doing online work? I'm sorry, can you repeat the last part? What's the difference in perspective between yeah, because you know, like when I started this podcast, I was like, oh, I imagine it's going to be like this and like that. But, oh, okay. but now it's just of like, it's, sometimes it's a headache, you know? But <laughs> of course. So um, I started my platform in 2014, and it was, you know, in short, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give the whole history because we're not talking about that. But in short, you know, I had come into Chicano politics and I felt like I had finally found like a place where I belonged, you know, versus like I went from white feminism to getting away from white feminism because I started interacting with a lot of black feminists um, or like, you know, just like black people on Twitter that then I was like, okay, like this white feminism is not 
for me like I am not white <laughs> which feeds into like this El Paso thing like I never really had to think about race and like where I stood and all that um but to you know just to make it short like when I came across Chicano politics I felt uh, drawn to it because I was like this is my history or like this is like I'm not white and I'm not black so I feel like this is like something that that is me and I felt very empowered by it and so I wanted to kind of just share like what like that because I didn't feel like there was a necessarily like a Chicana or Latina platform feminist platform like all the ones I would see were either like white mainstream ones or they were like black feminists who of course you know I am just I'm obviously I'm not black and so I created the Instagram account and I thought oh it'd be so cool if I got 500 followers you know um and then it you know obviously over the years it's turned into this really big platform that I never imagined it would um I actually did have a podcast it was very (laughs) short-lived it was only like four episodes and it was just me talking about you know whatever came to my mind it was just just me talking um and around that time I got booked to be on a panel um at, at Portland State University um, on machismo and the other person they had booked was Ruben and so like I knew Ruben um, online we weren't friends like I we followed each other and I was like hey we're both going to be on this panel together and then we ended up like staying together like at the same Airbnb um, like me him and my partner who went with me and we when me and Ruben met we just we just kicked it off you know like sometimes it's like awkward when you meet people in person (laughs) or you know you don't have to be best friends with it but me and Ruben kind of just hit it off and one of the things that we talked about together was Chicano politics and you know the flaws of it and like the violence of it and how we both felt at times like we didn't want to identify with it anymore because of all the like all the things the nationalism the anti-blackness the appropriation of indigenous cultures et cetera et cetera et cetera um, I asked him to be on my podcast and he was, and then once we recorded, we felt like, like we had a good vibe, like a good connection. And they were, you know, they said, we should just start our own podcast together. And that's how, you know, Bitter Brown Femmes became a thing. Um, and then I just, you know, again, my podcast was like four episodes. It wasn't this big thing. <laughs> it was kind of just something I wanted to do for fun. Um, I didn't really think the podcast was going to go anywhere. So with Bitter Brown Femmes, you know, it was mostly because me and Ruben have shared a lot of the same views or or thoughts. And we wanted to have these conversations um, with each other where people can access it Um, because they're conversations that me and and him have with each other all the time. Um, So the podcast with Bitter Brown Femmes, I... I didn't have any expectations of it. I didn't know how it would be. Um, Cause again, I had never really made a, a podcast before. Mine was just, again, it was on SoundCloud. I didn't, I would never thought I'm going to put this on iTunes or I'm going to invest all this energy into it. But with Bitter Brown Femmes, you know, that was something we did wanted to do from the beginning. And, um, you know, it's also turned into this, this very cool thing. You know, we get booked to talk at universities and to, to just a lot, you know, people listen to us (laughs) so you know I don't think we're like this huge podcast compared to you know there's so many podcasts right now and a lot of them you know they're very white and they have money and they have studios and then they you know you know 
I'm sure you know. <laughs> I know. But with us, it's like, yes, we have a following. And I, I think it's because both of us have different, like, had platforms before. So we kind of like had our own followings and those followers followed us into our podcast. But I don't know if we would have, I, I don't know where we would be if we just, we didn't have platforms and we just started a podcast, you know? Yeah, I, I appreciate your podcast because even some uh, native podcasts, like I feel like they are towing the line with like cuddling with Americanisms, you know, and I don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't do that. Um, and, you know, I th- uh, my thing was, um, you know, going into academics was uh, we have to challenge the norm, I guess. And that's, that's the part of academics is challenging ourselves. So, you know, when, we, when I talk about like native sovereignty or decolonization or native politics, I imagine everybody else who want to listen to this, <laughs> you know, and, and they don't, you know, and I think I is one of the few people that I met, you know, that, um, actually understood this, you know, and that's why I, I, I love Anon. Um, but it's one of those things that, uh, you know, like I didn't, like, I saw your Chicanisma page, right. And I see, mm-hmm. I have friends of Chicanos and, you know, and they, they posted it. I was like, what is this? Said, you know, there's, there's good stuff on there. And then, and then, and then until like I got tagged with your page, you know, on like haters and stuff, I was like, who is this person? And then it led me to, you know, you and Ruben and then Ruben, I was like, oh, and started listening to your podcast. And I was like, this is really good stuff, you know? Um, <clears throat> but um, it's, yeah, that's the thing I, I feel like as a Mexican, you know, I'm, I'm also Mexican uh, and native, um, and, you know, as a, as a Mexican person, you know, growing up mainly around Mexican people, there was a lot of like anti-indigenous rhetoric, you know, and it was always like, you know, like, like you know, like the India Maria movies, you know, and um, mm-hmm. like just slurs, like don't be in India, don't be an Indio. And she's like, what the fuck? What do you mean by that? You know, and mm-hmm. to me, it was... Um, you know, growing up with that and, you know, in, in California and, you know, with a bunch of Chicano culture and, and then, you know, as I was growing up, I, w- I started, you know, thinking to myself, like, this is all like freely fucked up culture we have within our cultures, Mexican culture. And it's not just, you know, the, the Mexicans in America, it's also it's the Mexicans in Mexico, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and that's what's something that I feel like we don't talk about much because I get a lot of Mexicans that say, well, we're brown. We can't oppress. We can't oppress. And it's like, yeah, you can, dude. Like, you know, you know, it's really crazy that um, that people within our, our societies say that that they, they believe that they can oppress. And it's to me, it's really, really, really dangerous rhetoric, you know. Um, but uh, to me, it's it's really it's like a breath of fresh air to hear that your, your show talk about these issues and that, you know, it's, and it's really like also really sad to see that, you know, when you brought up Vasconcelos and, and other issues regarding uh, indigeneity that people are sort of attacking you guys. And it's like, you know, people really need to listen to these points of views. Instead of listening, they, they attack and they go to slander or they go to, you know, and that's what's what's fucked up about Twitter. I think is that they go straight for the like the cancel culture, 
right? And I understand, mm. you know, uh, um, accountability and all that stuff. But, you know, lately there was uh, a Native woman journalist, um, Jacqueline Keeler, and she she did like a four-piece or five-piece episodes about fake Natives. And Twitter went, went, you know, all out trying to cancel her. You know, this is this is a Native woman, right? Talking about mm-hmm. issues and Twitter still, still went after her. And I was really amazed. I was like, oh, my God, like... Um, people really don't want to hear native people, you know, like non-native people don't want to hear native people. And to me, that's scary uh-huh. when they go after, you know, uh, you know, people always say, Oh, native women are sacred, blah, blah, blah. But then the first thing they do is like cancel culture her on Twitter. And to me, I'm just like, <laughs> it's scary. It's a scary thought that this is the, this is the online culture. Now, instead of having conversations, first off, Twitter it's not a place, my point of view, to have these culture, I mean, conversations. You know, I think this is why we have the podcast. And I don't really post too much on Twitter about these topics because um, I really do feel like uh, on Twitter is like so short, the posts, you know. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then we have to make posts after post comment after comment after comment. To me, it's just like, ah, I'll just, you know, make an episode and, and then I'll just release it and say, here, listen to this. Because I really don't feel like... You know, and then people don't, I don't know. It's like they dissect stuff and then it goes over their heads. And it's just like internet cultures to me, it's really odd, right? Like on one hand, it's a good place to spread, you know, ideas and information. On the other hand, people have gone really aggressive and it has created this like really aggressive culture within, um, I don't know within the U.S. and I, I, it's really, really sad. You know, like we can use this for good, but we you know we're instead of attacking each other. So I don't know. I know. Do you have anything? I know. Are you there? I'm sorry. What? I know. <laughs> Did he disappear? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. Here. Just okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, do you want to talk about? Um, I, I really feel like, uh. Lately, I don't know if it's been lately or have you always dealt with this kind of like pushback, Cassandra? Well, first, um, because when I first started uh, my platform, I, again, I was, I was just coming into Chicano politics. And so I was on, I was that terrible, like Chicana that did like, did and said all those terrible things. Like I was very, um, like Mexican nationalism, which in, you know, you know, like for me, like don't really unpack it or realize that you're being a fucking Mexican nationalist, <laughs> like until afterwards. But, you know, that's the, the, the dangerous thing with Chicano politics. Like it, it, you feed into it and you find it empowering. And so you believe everything that comes with it. And again, a lot of those things are anti-black. A lot of those things are nationalist. Um, it's a lot of xenophobia towards non-Mexicans, like Central Americans. It's again, um, appropriating indigenous culture and identity, right? Cause it's like this, this whole, we're all indigenous because we're all Mexican and we're all from Latin America. And um, even at one point, like I had, I, I, again, I'm from El Paso. So I just race or ethnicity wasn't something that I deeply thought about because we're you know everywhere around me were other like Mexican Americans like Spanish speaking culture um there was hardly any white people around me it was just something that I never really thought of until I left El Paso and so 
you know, I, growing up, I don't even think I knew any indigenous people or native people or even like had any, like, I didn't know a lot, a lot of things. And so when I started, you know, like claiming that I was a Chicana and, and all that stuff, um, I was like, oh, I, I believe that. I was like, oh, okay, like we're we're all indigenous. Like I'm indigenous, and I, I would I have said that I was indigenous, and it's really embarrassing and terrible for me to say this now, but I did say that at one point, you know. And of course, I don't I don't know what the fuck I meant when I said that. I just said it because you know that's what like the Chicano identity tells you that <laughs> that you are indigenous. I'm like, oh, okay, yes, I am indigenous, and it wasn't until I think a year after a year and a half at most that I, you know, I would get called out. And this was a good call out. This wasn't like trolls. (laughs) This was like people telling me that I was wrong. And I started, you know, actually sitting with everything that, that I was saying or thinking. And I'm like, no, like, this is not, this is not it. And so I had to unpack a lot of those things and let go of all of those things. And I was still, you know, and then from there, it kind of moved into like, yes, I'm claim, yes, I still identify as Chicana, but now I am critiquing all of these terrible things about this identity and this culture and this history, um, because I still felt like, yeah, I still felt empowered by it, but I wanted to call out the bad parts of it so that everyone can just, you know, do better, like, mm-hmm that that's what so like my politics have definitely changed from the beginning until now and uh, I I hope they keep evolving because I feel like that that should be everybody's goal right Mm -hmm. um so I just wanted to lay that out that before like I was like that typical Chicana and now I'm not and um so like what I was trying to get at is like at the beginning I didn't get called out because you know, my page was called Chicanismo, so a lot of people were on the same bullshit as me. So they didn't have a need to call me out. You know, they were also saying the same things I was saying. And then I, as I, as I started shifting and as I started realizing, you know, um, all of these bad things that I was doing and all of these bad things that came with Chicano politics, like that's when I started getting harassment. And yeah. that's when people didn't want to fuck with me because then, then all of a sudden they're like, wait, you just said you were Chicana, but now all of a sudden you know, you're critiquing us on this and you're critiquing us on this and you're calling that machismo and you're saying we're not indigenous. And, and then that's like when the problems came in, when you kind of interject into that. Um, So yes, I, after that, like I I regularly get harassment and it's like on an everyday thing. And it's not just from um, fellow like Chicanexes, you know, sometimes it's white people, sometimes it's white men, sometimes it's straight people, but Generally, it has been from Chicano men, like specifically. Yeah. And it's been when I call out anti-Blackness, it's been when I call out um, not just anti-Indigenous sentiments, but the fact that we're, that we're not Indigenous. And uh, and that's not to say that you can't be Chicanx and Indigenous. That's not to say that you're not, you know, automatically Indigenous just because you're, <laughs> you're Latino or you're from, you know, X, Y, and Z in Latin America. So... Yeah, I mean that's just a normal that that you know that's just, that just has been the norm for me online, and it's really exhausting. And sometimes, like I I have deactivated for like two months at a time. Sometimes I feel like I don't even want to do it anymore because I feel like every time I say something, I get shut down or I get harassed, and people are just kind of you know waiting for me to do something so that they can call me out on it that, instead that's, of that's a thing sitting, that, yeah with it with what i'm saying and reflecting and you know 
Yeah, somebody somebody came on my on this podcast and they, we did a Chicano episode. It was like, I think it was like episode eight, and then she contacted me telling me to if I can take it down because she was getting a lot of heat, right? And she was getting a lot of heat from other Chicanos, but I told her like, hey man, like Native people like really like that episode, right? Like they're appreciative mm -hmm. of, of what she said. You know, I get like Native people were contacting me when I came and finally, you know, and I told her just because you hear you don't hear the good doesn't mean it's not out there. You know, and I told her, you know, when, when, I, when I spoke to her about this and she was like, OK, keep it on. You know, I was like, OK, you know, like that's the thing. If you know, we hear a lot of the negatives and we don't sometimes we it drowns out the positives, you know, and mm -hmm. I think I think your show, in my opinion, you know, your show's are really good in your page too um this there's you know i think um what's missing from mexican culture not just chicanese but mexican culture is, is, the, is the conversation of like colonization you know in history and that's what's fed a lot within us you know it's like oh we're all part aztec but there's so many different communities in Mexico that exist that are not aztec or mexica or whatever you know and they mm -hmm. they fetishize this you know, uh, one society and it's, you know, it roots back to Vasconcelos, you know, this whole thing of like mestizaje and like we're all indigenous. So the indigenous voices disappear in Mexico. And it's just like, that's what's fucked up. And, you know, and the, the, the conversation of native sovereignty is not even in that conversation at all. So when, whenever I talk to Chicanos or Mexicans, I'm like, what about our sovereignty? And they have a blank face. And I'm like, yo, how, how are we going to decolonize without that topic? Right. And that's why I got into mm -hmm. indigenous law was for that reason, for our sovereignty, how to protect it and how to have that conversation with Mexican people and indigenous people in Mexico. And that conversation is very different in Mexico compared to here. You know, you talk about... Um, critiquing our own communities i think so too and i critique the native community here in the u.s the native u.s um they don't really listen to indigenous people in mexico right and i think that's a problem too and i i say this stuff you know and you know and they go like no i have a chicano friend i'm like that's not the same thing <laughs> so it's you know it's it's really hard you know that we have privilege here too and you know, even though we are colonized here, we have, you know, the U.S. natives here, uh, we have a privilege that, you know, native people in Mexico don't have, you know, which is our sovereignty. You know, we fought for it. We went through a lot of shit for it. Um, but that conversation is very missing from, you know, Mexican-American studies or, or Chicanismo, you know, studies. And I think, you know, I, I'm starting to see um, more Mexicans, more Chicanos. Uh, talk about indigenous sovereignty, but in a really weird and twisted way, like reclaim my sovereignty, you know, but you can't reclaim sovereignty as an individual. It's, that is a community aspect. Like you can claim mm -hmm. autonomy as an individual, but sovereignty is not an individual thing. You can't claim yourself as a tribe. You know, you need that community. And if you don't have that community or, you know, if people don't have the community, how could they say, they're sovereign. How, how can they say they're they're indigenous if they, if they don't know if they're indigenous? Or not? And that's what's really scary right now. What I really do think colonization is, you know, it's like a monster that morphs into these different things with many ten tentacles. And I think, um, you know, it steals the rhetoric from native people 
to um to just you know to keep active and i think um i i heard this from another podcast there's two uh recognized cherokee tribes and there's over 200 fake ones right that's how bad it is so you know i can't even imagine what's you know what's going on in mexico because um, you know, there's laws in the U.S. that protect, you know, native arts. There's 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 laws to protect native religions. You know, and, and you know, um, and in Mexico that doesn't exist. P- anybody can p- say, "Hey, I now I speak Nahuatl," and it's just like, "What?" But are you indigenous? And it's like, "No, but I speak Nahuatl, and I'm a Nahuatl professor." And it, to me, that's very scary. How like anybody can pick up, you know. Um, indigenous cultures in Mexico and claim it as their own when they, when they don't know, they don't have this community with them. You know, that's, that's my perspective. I don't know if I know has anything to say about this or Cassandra. Um, yeah, I can add maybe a little bit of my experiences with that too. Um, I think it's really easy for brown skinned people to, you know, who are Mexican to just say they're indigenous and not be questioned by non by other non-Indigenous people, because they can feed into that mentality of, like, the Chicano, not just Chicano, but the idea of, like, well, we're brown, so clearly we're Indigenous, who knows from where, but, like, you know, but, like, we're going to reclaim it, and it's like, okay, fine, but what does that, what does that mean, you know? Um, And so for me, like, um, I didn't even know what Chicano was, or, you know, Chicanx was until, uh, like, 11th grade, I think it was, and my teacher said that he identified as Chicano, and I was all like, oh, I don't know what the hell that means, because I'm like an 11th grader, and I don't really care, (laughs) and so I just like, I didn't really internalize any of that, and then like later, um, once I like met Rick, and we started having these conversations, I was like, oh yeah, Chicano is kind of something I had heard about, that's kind of like this word, and I was like, well, what is it, you know, and then, then I started like talking to him, and then you know, kind of got more versed in, chi- chi- in like, what it means to be Chicano. And then, like, I asked my mom, and I was like, Mom, have you ever heard of, like, what what is being called Chicano? And she was like, no, what the hell is that? And it's, <laughs> it's funny to me because, like, you grew up in El Paso, too, but it also shows, like, the very different worlds that one can inhabit within El Paso, you know, <laughs> um, within the same, like, larger city is, like, me growing up, it was like you were Mexican or you were not Mexican, you know? Um, and then, you know, then you were white or black. And then those were like the only sort of identities that we had, you know, um, or and straight and queer, you know, or gay. Um, and those are like your only options. And so like we didn't have, I, I never had like any sort of like Chicano mentor. I never had any sort of like involvement with the Chicano community like ever, you know, my first, my first like experiences with it were kind of from the, the way that, you know, Rick has been attacked or the podcast has been attacked, you know, that's my only, like, that was like my first intro to like how problematic Chicanismo can be, you know, but then, then you look more into it. And of course, like there are some people who are trying and there are some people who have, you know, try to remedy things and, you know, are actually doing some really productive things. And then you get into the bigger perspective of like, well, what does that mean? Like, okay, how do we leverage this? Because really at the end of the day, it's like non-white people who are being oppressed. 
and we have to kind of find some way to like stop the infighting, not by erasing each other's voices and saying like, well, you can't talk about that because we all have to be united right now. But, you know, it's kind of, we have to find this way that that works, you know, that works better than like our, our oppressors basically, you know, than works better than the mainstream society that's banking on the fact that we're going to infight each other. You know, and so, like, they don't have to necessarily do much except spread misinformation or, like, you know, like, they don't have to try <laughs> to get us to, like, beat each other up. Like, you know, it's really easy for them. Um, and as long as you continue the narratives of, like, nationalism and identity and, you know, you have to be one or the other in this very, like, defined binary perception that, you know, our modern world is so obsessed with, then, like, you know, we're going to be, we're not going to be united, you know? Like, it's not, it's not okay identity-wise to be, like, indigenous and Chicano, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. both communities might see that as problematic, but if you're someone who identifies that way, you know, then, like, what, where is your space, you know? And as long as we're kind of, like, fighting about it instead of, like, using it constructively to, like, reconstruct, deconstruct, and, like, just mess everything up, but, like, keep, you know, like, not in the sense where we're erasing people's voices, but, like, you know, making something different, um, I think that's progress, you know? So, like, I think it's important to have dialogue, and I think it's important to debate, and I think it's important to discuss, but, you know, it's, it's hard, because I know, I know that you, um, that both of you have been constantly attacked, you know, by, like, quote-unquote, your own people, um, you know, because that's what they would say, you know, and it's like, we all have brown skin and they hate us because of our brown skin, you know, like, <laughs> that doesn't mean that all our brown skin experiences are the same thing by, yeah. by any means, cause they're not, but you know, like we have to, I don't know, that's something that we have to kind of critique and really mm-hmm. sit with and think about as a quote unquote community, um, and then progress. I agree. You know? That, that's the thing. Yeah. I, I, you have a comment, and I didn't have a question for Cassandra. That's the thing. I asked my mom too when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I asked my mom, you know, I was like, "What? What is Chicano?" And she told me, "Oh, they're just Mexicans. I think they're better than us." You know, because my mom was also born in Mexico, and I was like, "What?" So, but growing up in California, Chicanismo is saturated there. So I grew up like after time, you know, believing in like Aslan and you know all this other stuff, and I see people online. They're saying like, oh, he's a thing. He was a Chicano. I never thought I was a Chicano. I knew I wasn't, you know. Um, so I asked Chicanos, many Chicanos, like, what is a Chicano? And I came to like three conclusions. One is an ideology, right? So an ideology can't give you indigeneity, right? So that's that. Two is an experience. So, you know, it's like, you know, they're children of like migrants, so I was a migrant myself. So obviously I don't fall into that. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, but like there's, you know, a migrant that got disconnected from their roots, but there's Chinese people that experience that, right? They come here, they came here from China in the you know 1800s and they don't know their ethnicities. Chinese people, there's a lot of many ethnicities. So are they Chicanos? And that's a serious question, you know? Um, and or does it just fall within just Mexicans? Because and there's articles that people argue within themselves, like, oh, only only Mexicans are, Chic- are Chicanos, or only Mexicans and Central Americans are Chicanos, and it's to me it's like, hey guys, like, 
we really need to touch this, you know, and part of me covering or, or talking about this topic on, on this podcast is to extend my hand out to Chicanos to work with them to say, hey, man, there's some stuff within your ideology that is really harmful towards native people. And I've done this, you know, here and here in San Antonio and, in, you know, in, in California. And anytime I, I say this, they feel like I don't like Chicanos. Like, no, dude, I want to work with Chicanos. Like, I want to make the ideology stronger because there's a bigger problem, which is white supremacy and, you know, in, in colonization from the U.S. government and the Mexican government, you know, and we got to tackle that shit. But we can't tackle it if you're also pushing colonization yourself. Right. So you need to unpack that within our, our, our ideologies. And to me, there was something that happened to me in Washington that I found really weird. Um, I I asked somebody, what are you? You know, what's your ethnicity? And they said Chicano. I was like, oh, so you're what you know, what part of Mexico? They're like, I'm not Mexican at all. I'm I'm Chicana because I don't know what it's like to be from Mexico. I never lived there. Okay, I granted, I I can give them that, but you know, like they're making a whole different like race, you know, or ethnicity. And and to me, you know, and at the same time claim indigeneity is really, really tricky. You know, um, I, I, it's, it's just, you know, and then they say like, we want to reclaim this and reclaim that like the La Raza reclaim it. Right. When, when Cassandra made her post, like, well, we, we're going to reclaim this to me. That was, it's, it's like a cop out. Like, so anytime something's hard to talk about, they're going to say reclaim it. it. It, to me, it's just, it's asinine, you know? And I think, you know, either we need to make a whole new ideology or we need to critique Chicanismo. If, if Chicanos are not going to want to critique it, then I'm, I'm okay with that. And then I always move on to a different community, you know, that to, to, you know, community of, you know, Chicanos or Mexican-Americans that want to, to, to critique it and to create a different ideology. Or we're going to, like, do work and actually, like, you know, I non said, like, help it evolve to the future because I'm Mexican too, you know, and, and that's the thing. Like, I feel like this is my responsibility to help, you know, this ideology move forward. And me as a Mexican, me and me as a Native person help move this forward and it's hard. So, you know, and this brings up to my question for Cassandra, like, you know, you had your name changed. Do you really feel like Chicanismo could be, I guess, saved? I don't know. Or do you think we should create something new and just move forward? Is she there? Cassandra? Yeah, it, oh. I mean, Chicano identity and politics, like, it's... It's this, um, yeah, like resistant to change, and that that's been my issue with it because it's like, you know, this Chicano uh, politics and discourse or ideology, I guess I would say, and its history is mostly rooted, you know, from the '60s, and you know, I, a lot of orgs, a lot of political thought, you know, they're all gonna be flawed, but then you you reflect and you get called out or you make changes and you improve and like with the with Chicanos, it's it just like Chicano politics has just remained the same since the sixties. Like, you know, I, me and Ruben, you know, we have this, we have a platform, we have a podcast. And so we feel definitely it's very important to have these conversations. Um, but it's like, we're not the first people to say these things. And especially, you know, 
it's been non-Chicanos that have said these things, you know, like Central Americans. Yes. Um, it's been Black people. Um, it's been Indigenous people, you know, that have, have made these critiques. So we're definitely not the first. Um, but, you know, that's another thing that a lot of the times, like, fellow Chicanexes don't want to listen to others they don't want to listen to black people they don't want to listen to indigenous people like they want to be able to claim that they're indigenous but they're not actually going to listen to actual indigenous people and so it they still are resistant when other chicanx to say it but it, at, at some on some level like i feel like they're still more willing to listen right because they're like oh well they're like me so like i'll listen to them versus listening to an actual indigenous person which is shitty as, as fuck you know but um that's the reality so it's just yeah it's just one of the questions I always told myself was like is it worth putting all this work into quote-unquote saving uh, the the Chicano identity to make it better or is it just like you need to throw it away like it's just if you all are just gonna be resistant to anything like what is the point you know what is the point in even identifying as Chicano for me when if I call out anti-blackness, all of a sudden I have all these DMs saying that I'm not Chicana and I'm a Chicana traitor. So what does that say about Chicanismo? That if I call out anti-blackness, I'm not Chicana. So, I mean, you're pretty much just telling on yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So it's just, you know, it's very, it's like uh, exhausting conversations to have. Um, because again, they've, they've been, we've been having these conversations, maybe not as much as like people are seeing now online, but they have like these conversations have been happening since the 60s so there hasn't been any improvement or any like acknowledgement of these things on a on a big scale yeah that's scary because that's a long time you know and i would imagine that these changes would be adapted you know uh in like academia and during my time in undergrad i brought this up like um professor i took a mexican american studies at my undergrad and, you know, she was like, oh, this used to be part of Mexico. And I was like, oh, that used to be part of Native land. And she was like, yeah, I don't care. Like in front of the class, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know. And um, I don't know. It's, it's really hard. And, I, and I'm grateful f- to hear any voices talk about this, you know, uh, this topic. So when I hear uh, you and Ruben in, in the, you know, your platform as big it is, as it is, I mean, you, you probably don't think it's big. But to me, it's, it's pretty dang big. I'm, I'm grateful. So I do want to, you know, put this out there. If anybody wants to, you know, um, bring your voices on this podcast, you, you know, as a Chicano person, a Chicano person, you're, you're more free to do so. I actually want to have a, like a, bring a, make a team so I can let go of this podcast myself. Because to me, you know, I feel like I'm doing so much work here and I'm getting like a lot of attacks i'd rather just have you know a team of people and then just be part of a team and let everybody do their own thing on this podcast anybody can make episodes on this podcast so anybody out there listening if you want to be part of a podcast that's that's the colonial work or theory work you know you're welcome here but um i really do feel like mexican americans and you know chicano voices should be listened to but in the same time they should also listen you know, and I, you know, I'm going to emphasize again, Mexican indigenous voices really need to be put in the forefront right now. Like that's like no bullshit for me. So um, they are having this discussion on Twitter and I really feel like nobody's listening to them. And then in Central Americans too, you know, 
and indigenous people from Central America. You know, and to me, um, you know, I, I feel like, um, I, I don't know what to say other than more people should listen to it. Um, Ainan, do you have any other questions to talk about? Uh, I, I know you put a big uh, list. No, I was, I was kind of maybe thinking like maybe, maybe we can do some closing thoughts and if that's okay with everyone. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. I'm good. Okay. Um, do you, want, do you want to go first? I guess. Yeah. As, uh, Cassandra, do you want to go ahead and maybe if you have any closing thoughts, um, any last points or anything? Um, I, well, first I wanted to thank, uh, both of you for allowing me to share the space with you all on here and have this conversation. I'm, um, well, first, uh, I'm very happy I got to, we got to talk a little bit about El Paso again, because it's, uh, because we're both from El Paso and have lived here, but also because it's, uh, it is a very unique place. Um, there's a lot going on here that also, again, is affecting obviously the people that live here but it is also again i think people should be aware of these things everywhere um so um, i don't know i guess just <laughs> if you are from el paso and you're listening to this or if you're from another border city or anywhere else and you're like related to it i think it's very important to just kind of sit with with these systems of oppression that exist in our cultures, in our households, in our communities, in our cities, and really just call them out and unpack them, right? Because a lot of us live in, in like this comfort. Um, and I'm speaking, you know, specifically with El Paso, how we kept talking about how a lot of people here are very comfortable in their privilege and their safety, whatever we want to call it. And it's, it's time to, you know, disrupt our own, our own privilege and our own, uh, you know, comfortness within, within these systems. So um, with that as well, you know, we talked about the, with Chicano community, Chicanx community, and it's the same there as well. You know, a lot of us, me included, felt very empowered by the Chicanx um, politics and identity. And it came at the expense of a lot of other marginalized people. And I had to sit with that. And it's like, we can either choose to be, to sit here and be comfortable and choose here to be empowered or we can actually, you know, think about the ways that we also benefit from these systems and, and, and call them out and start challenging ourselves and others in our community. So um, I guess that's what I really wanted to end on. Thank you. I know. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I echo that. Um, and that, you know, I obviously find what you just said very relatable. Um, and then I guess maybe I can just add, uh, you know, for people who are listening, but also for us, that identity isn't something that's necessarily set in stone. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the reasons I was excited about doing this episode is because I'm also from El Paso, but, you know, I, I lived in a lot of different places. And I, you know, I speak Japanese because I lived in Japan for so long. And like, that was really cool. You know, like, that's not an experience that a lot of people in El Paso have. Um, but I'm also very like proud to be from there, but not, not, not in a, like, let me shove it in your face kind of way, but like in a way that I know that I'm very unique and I carry this very unique, these very unique cultural, you know, and linguistic traditions with me. And like, that's just something that 
but I carry with me, you know, and like I, I love, I love El Paso. I really do. Like I love the outdoors. I love the mountains. I love the sunset. I love the plants, you know, like it's just, it's so homey to me. And like, that's why I love living in, in Tucson right now. Cause it's another desert. It's a different desert, but it, you know, it, it really sparks a lot of like the nostalgia that I have of El Paso, all the, all the good things of my childhood, which always involves not people for the most part. Um, I like nature a lot. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of maybe my final thoughts was like, even if you're born into these systems of oppression, even if you're born, you know, and you're told that you have to be a certain way, like, you know, like, <laughs> take what you take what you can, you know, and really, I think it's important to sit and analyze, and like you said, and like really critique, um, critique as a way for growth, um, you know, and really like grow from it, and let's let's you know grow the fuck up, and let's let's evolve, and like yeah. let's let's be more inclusive with each other. And I think having these kinds of conversations is really important because like the three of us all have brown skin, but you know, we all have very different life experiences and like we all have very different perceptions of things. And that's like a good thing, you know, because we can share and we can grow from it and we can like enrich each other. And I think we need, it's important to, it's always important to keep that momentum going, you know, and and dialogue and, Critical dialogue is always something that I'm very uh, pro, and I always like to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Um, I, I want I want to thank both of you for you know uh, coming on coming to show me. I a host yet. I know, but I has been kind of busy lately. Um, I think it's good to you know. I think what people need to do is realize that what connects us is colonization, all of us, our communities, native Mexicans and, you know, um, different from different people in Chinese, you know, whatever. Um, And um, when we critique, we're not doing it for because we hate if we're doing it because we want to see each other succeed. You know, Um, I think. before we start claiming, I'm speaking that now. I'm speaking to you know the Mexican community or Chicano. Um, before we start claiming indigenous, we should have the conversation of sovereignty um, within Mexico, indigenous sovereignty. And I think it does not mean blood quantum or, or anything like that. So, but we do need the, the conversation of sovereignty and what it looks like for native people in Mexico. What do they want? It doesn't mean it looks like the U.S. native sovereignty way, but you know, I think that conversation needs to have, you know, I'm going to try to bring it on the show, but that conversation needs to be had. And it's, it's, it's a hard conversation, man, because I have my visions of the, of, of uh, decolonization and, you know, other indigenous people have a difference in no ways, the, the right way. And it's not going to be easy. I mean, decolonization and moving towards what people say decolonization is, is, you know, it's, it's going to be hard, you know, and, and, you know, to have these conversations, you know, I imagine to have beef with white people and not with my art, my own community, but it happens, you know, but I just hope people understand that <clears throat> um, when we bring stuff on this, on this podcast, that is to bring conversations. And, and if you think we're wrong, come on the show, we'll talk about it. You know, um, I, I have no quarrels with that. So I mean, we have we have quite a few Chicanos on here, and you, if other ones want to come on, it's fine. Um, 
but yeah, thank everybody. I want to thank everybody for coming on and, you know, us. I just hope that everybody has is safe during this COVID pandemic. That's a whole different conversation, but, you know, we got to be safe and we got to, in the same time, fight the system, which is fucking harder during this pandemic. But think, think, Cassandra, don't hang up. <laughs> but I'm going to end the show right now and I appreciate everybody's input. So thank you. <laughs>